This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New York Times. Right now, you can subscribe to the New York Times for 50 cents a week. I have been instructed to no longer tell you such things I have previously said, like, for example, that someone at the New York Times is a moron for offering the world's greatest newspaper for such a small amount of money, or that offering the New York Times for 50 cents a week is an insult to the journalism and sacrifice of its journalists who are all over the world, in some of the worst places in the world, trying to bring you the real news. That I can't frankly imagine why you would trust your news to to your slightly racist and misinformed former boss on Facebook who likes to retweet fake news articles that seem to pop up every day. For example, recently there were several articles on Facebook claiming that the Delta variant of coronavirus isn't real and that having a healthy immune system or eating vegan means that you won't get regular COVID, which is really just a bad flu. This is not true. Or there's another one, a video, you guessed it, on Facebook that claims to show a microchip to track you inside a vial of Pfizer vaccine. I don't really need to explain to you that this is obviously not true. And finally, there's an article circulating that claims that the CEO of Tyson Foods was swallowed by a whole chicken while touring an experimental chicken barn growing humongous chickens. This sadly is also not true. And so, I am only allowed to say that you can get a digital subscription to the New York Times for 50 cents a week and definitely not allowed to say any of that other stuff. Go to nytimes.com to get started. This is a food podcast. It's a show about food and chefs and restaurants and of the histories and stories I can find about those things. I have spent a crazy amount of time working on this show, and it's changed over time, but all for the better in my opinion. But today, today is not really about food, and it's not really about restaurants, and it's not really about chefs. It's about a time in London, England, when hundreds of thousands of people were drinking so much gin that it destroyed the lives of nearly all of them. A time when the city of London was overrun by gin and the debauchery that came with literally chugging pints of the stuff. Every day and every night, the poor of London were drinking gin that could cause blindness, fighting, stealing, and even murder. And so, today, it's all about the gin craze. I'm Brian Clark, and this is Let's Talk About Chef. through the extremely short history of human beings, you can see that several times during our brief stay on this planet, entire civilizations were nearly destroyed by mass alcoholism. It's a time period usually short-lived when the entire collective loses their minds and descends into chaos. For example, the Romans were notorious for drinking absolute Herculean amounts of wine. 
So much so that the Roman elite, who would all be constantly throwing huge banquets trying to one-up each other, they would drink so much wine that these parties would be a never-ending, days-long, sometimes weeks-long events of binge drinking and orgies. A few thousand years later in America in the early 1800s, when whiskey became cheap and made everywhere, when booze is cheaper than water, and I mean that, whiskey was the cheapest drinkable liquid you could buy in the US, alcoholism rates climbed sky high. By the 1830s, the average American consumed up to 7 gallons or 26 liters of pure ethanol a year. Now that may seem completely insane, but it doesn't even come close to what happened in the 1700s in London, England, and the drink that caused that all was gin. But why gin? Although humans started distilling neutral spirit into alcohol as early as the 1200s, Distilling wasn't really popular or available to anyone other than kings who could afford it. It's much easier and takes less equipment to make cider, beer, or wine. And most castles, mansions, and country estates had dedicated staff in their kitchens who would make these drinks for the whole household. Distillation was used in apothecaries to make medicine rather than liquor. Nevertheless, many 15th, 16th, and 17th century spirits probably did bear some resemblance to gin, and that's because juniper berries were one of the earliest and most widely used flavorings for all neutral grain spirits. As the decades advanced, various regions began to develop their own styles of booze. The French and Dutch developed brandwijn, meaning burnt wine, and although it's literally distilled wine, which would eventually be called brandy. The Russians left the juniper out of their neutral grain spirits and it developed into vodka. The Irish and Scots developed Poitin and then whiskey, and the Dutch created Genevieve, the juniper-accented spirit that the English would refer to as Madame Geneva, which eventually just became gin. As with modern gins, the products created by the Dutch were infused with a variety of botanicals, from the juniper to spices and clove, coriander, caraway, and anise. It wasn't until the latter half of the 1600s, though, that enough small-scale spirits producers were producing enough spirit for its popularity to begin to rise as a commercially available beverage. And even as the century came to a close, gin was still more of a novelty than anything else in London. The most commonly available spirits of the day were French brandies. So why did gin reach epidemic levels only a few decades later? That's because, up to this point in the history of London, brandy had been the drink of choice. But, thanks to the many years' war with France, it was suddenly unpatriotic to drink the French spirit. Think like freedom fries instead of French fries in America during the start of the Afghani war. And also, thanks to that many years' war, it was really hard to get a hold of French brandy. Because the British government didn't want its public to be drinking French-made booze and therefore giving money to France to help with the war effort, Parliament passed a new law in which it would be very cheap to start a distillery in England, and even cheaper to drink British-made liquor. And so distilleries started to pop up everywhere, and the easiest spirit to make was gin. Now, when I say gin, you are picturing what we now call gin in your mind, and the liquid that these British distillers were making was absolutely nothing like it, other than they used juniper. This stuff was not floral. It did not have a woodsy aroma and smell of cedar and lavender. This stuff could basically strip the wallpaper off of a wall and then maybe eat through the wall itself. It was awful. 
It smelt like pure gasoline and even had small amounts of sulfuric acid and turpentine in it. It was, in short, poison. And a poison that would burn your throat and cause blindness. And add that to the public, they weren't mixing this stuff in tonic or with lime juice. That practice wouldn't become common until several decades later when the British army was drinking a much more refined gin in India. During this time, because quote-unquote gin was so cheap and virtually everywhere, you could get a pint for a penny. There was a very famous sign that would hang above gin bars that said, Drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two, clean straw for nothing. The assumption being that you, for two cents, would be so drunk that you would collapse where you stood, and the staff of the gin cellar would toss you into a pile of clean straw in the corner where you could sleep it off or die. It's estimated that in London, which had a population of 600,000 people at this time, they had around 7,000 gin cellars. And those are just the ones that we know about, or the legal ones. If you can combine the illegal dens and legal ones, there was over 10,000 gin cellars that just served gin. But why were so many people getting plastered every day? More on that after the break. Thanks to Freedom Mobile's Big Gig Unlimited data plans, I'm finally free to post all my hot takes on social media. All right, here we go. Hot take. If you slap two pizzas together, that's a sandwich. The Earth isn't flat or round. It's a cube. Dogs and cats are secretly dating. Will Arnett is the greatest living actor. And I'm banned from all social media. I guess the truth is just too spicy for some people. Get the freedom of Canada's most affordable unlimited data plans. Learn more at freedommobile.ca. Conditions apply. London, England in the early 1700s was a beacon for all of the countries and Europe's poor people. It was a massive city with a population of 600,000. The next closest cities in England had populations of 20,000. Every single day, thousands of poor people would arrive in London hoping to find work, hoping to find a better life, and all in the shiny capital that had been sold to them as a place where everybody could work and you could turn your life around. In actuality, London was a horror show. Not only were there virtually no jobs or housing to speak of, there was no way to make enough money to eat, and so all these people, whether to ward off the hunger pains, depression, or just because it was so cheap, turned to drinking gin all day, every day, and all night to cure what ailed them. People in London were drinking so much gin that production in London alone went from 500,000 gallons in 1695 to almost 11 million gallons in 1730. That's an increase of 2,100%. Hundreds of thousands of the poor in London were fully addicted to gin. More alcoholics per capita than had ever been seen before lived there. Every day there would be massive fights, prostitution, the streets flowed with vomit, pawn shops were overrun with people selling things they stole, or even the clothes off of their backs just so they could buy more gin. Door handles were stolen in the thousands in London, with people hoping they could get a few cents for the wrought iron ornate door knocker or handle. As gin production and public drunkenness soared, it naturally gave birth to a moral panic, centered around that rampant liquor consumption. Social critics and upper-class writers of the day would publicly write and complain about the ugliness of this apparent plague on the city streets and several attempts were made by the English government to dissuade gin drinkers or increase taxes on gin merchants, all with little to no success. 
The well-to-do had seen such things before, but never in such volume, and they did very, very little to hide their disgust. There was even one carriage company that offered gin craze tours where rich people would ride in a locked stagecoach through the poor areas of the city and stare out the windows at the thousands and thousands of drunks wandering around through the night. Think Jurassic Park, but beyond the Jeep windows aren't dinosaurs, just really drunken, dirty-looking people. This anarchy continued for years, until finally in 1734, a woman by the name of Judith Dufour was convicted and hung for the crime of strangling her two-year-old child so that she could sell its clothes so she could get more gin. Newspapers in London were flooded with the headline that the gin craze had to be stopped, and it was finally then that the government stepped in. Parliament finally passed a Gin Control Act in 1736, which forced gin sellers to buy liquor licenses for the equivalent of $8,000 today. They also offered rewards for people to snitch on any gin vendor operating without a license, which would have been a good plan if the people they were expecting to snitch weren't completely addicted to gin. When the laws were passed, gin vendors simply went underground and operated illegally. In total, of the 7,000 known gin vendors, only two ever bought licenses. By the 1740s, gin vendors had come up with new and exciting ways of selling gin to the public, like a version of a vending machine. Now, this vending machine was called the Puss and Meow, and was invented by an entrepreneur named Captain Dudley Broadstreet. He built a large metal statue of a cat built into the wall of an unassuming building. This cat had a metal spout sticking out of it, and a slot in its mouth for coins. All a person in search of gin had to do was drop a few coins into the mouth of the cat and then put their mouth on the spout, and a person behind the statue would then pour about a pint of gin through the spout into the throat of the waiting person. Now, this not only led to dozens of people every night collapsed in the street around the cat statue, but also meant that the gin vendor behind the statue could remain anonymous. And that was because of a loophole in the Gin Act law that no policeman was allowed to enter a building to arrest a gin vendor without the testimony of an informant to the gin vendor's identity. So, basically, if you didn't know who was pouring the gin behind the wall, the police couldn't enter. This allowed the Puss and Meow to stay in operation for years. Now, Captain Dudley Bradstreet even wrote about his statue in his memoir that was titled The Life and Uncommon Adventures of Captain Dudley Bradstreet, and I quote, The mob being very noisy and clamorous for want of their beloved liquor, it soon occurred to me to venture upon that trade. I bought the act and read it over several times and found no authority by it to break one's doors and that the informer must know the name of the person who rented the house it was sold in. To evade this, I got an acquaintance to take a house in the Blue Anchor Alley and purchased in Moorfields the statue of a cat and had it nailed to a street window. I then caused a pipe to be placed under the paw of the cat and when the liquor was properly disposed, I got a person to inform a few of the mob that Jim would be sold by the cat at my window, and the next day provided they put money in its mouth. I heard the chink of money, and a comfortable voice say, Puss, give me two pennyworth of gin. I instantly put my mouth on the tube and bid them to receive the pipe under her paw. From all parts of London, people used to res resort to me in such numbers that my neighbors could scarcely go out or in their houses. Finally, by 1743, the gin craze reached its peak, with over 18 million gallons of gin being consumed in England. Then, after 1743, gin consumption started to decline by almost half every year for the next decade. 
Now, some people do credit the Gin Act of 1751 as the cause for the decline, which made it illegal for distillers to sell their gin to anyone but licensed retailers, which overnight meant that gin distillers had to raise their prices to stay afloat. This was also the time that tea and coffee started to become more popular. And, along with the Industrial Revolution starting to take hold of the country, more and more jobs were becoming available in factories, and you couldn't really be plastered operating heavy machinery. Beer had also made a comeback as the drink of choice for England, and that, as they say, is that. It took a long time for distillers to learn how to make gin that wasn't horrible. It took even longer for people to start buying and drinking it again in England. The idea behind the spirit and the common knowledge of what it used to mean about you if you drank it took decades to disappear. But it did disappear. And that's why today we have such gins as Boodles, London Dry, and Bombay, all gins made in England. Gin became popular among the royal aristocrats and British generals, and as I said before, in India, especially when added to tonic. We as a species have a strange ability to become wholly addicted to things. And that isn't something we alone carry the weight of. If you've ever seen elephants traveling vast distances in Africa to find the fermented fruit on the ground under the marula trees, they get wasted eating it. Or dolphins that chew on pufferfish to get high off the poison. It shows that we aren't the only things capable of wanting to get messed up. But the world had never seen anything like what happened in London during the gin craze. And the only thing you can really compare it to is the current opioid epidemic plaguing the United States today. Hopefully, the American government will step up like the British government did hundreds of years ago and do something to help, but who knows? Until then, all we can do to beat the heat of late summer and take the edge off the stress of the day is have a gin cocktail. And if it's a martini, come on, it's shaken, not stirred. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written and hosted by me, Brian Clark. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. Wherever you are in the world, thanks for listening to the show. And if you want to tell someone you know about it, we would be grateful. You can find all past and current episodes on letstalkaboutchef.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it from me. And so, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. Lexington, one, two, five, feel sick and dirty.